0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast powered by CFM. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode I speak to Mark Ainsworth, the former head of data science at Schroder's, a two and a half centuries old asset manager that is notable for its use of alternative data. In this episode, Mark and I discuss what made Schroders take this unusual route and how his work there differed from the more familiar alternative data working patterns of hedge funds. We also touch on a subject dear to Mark's heart, which is neurodiversity and its higher propensity amongst technologists. So in this episode, I'm joined by Mark Ainsworth, previously of Schroeder's. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. Hello, Mark. Uh, brilliant. Well, so Mark, let's just do a very, if you could just do a very kind of tranquil, brief um, kind of introduction to yourself before alternative data came across your radar. Yeah, that could be a good start. Yeah,
1: so the key thing that energizes me as a person, as a professional, is is helping people make decisions with data and uh so my career i guess and the path i've taken is illustrated well by the two degrees i have so i have a degree in psychology i'm interested in people how they work and applying and and psychology is a useful discipline as an analytics person a lot of statistics techniques got invented for psychology and then my master's was in operations research uh, which uh, is a discipline not many people have heard of but essentially it's it's sort of super applied maths it's uh sometimes taught under the topic uh decision maths so it's optimization network analysis game theory statistics and so uh my whole career has been about sort of the blending of those two worlds of doing clever things with algorithms and technology and, and mathematics but where the um you know the outcome is is then helping people and and uh much of what's interesting about those problems is is the people dimension to those those problems? So I've done that sort of thing in lots of places. I was at uh, South Micro at British Airways for three years. I was at McLaren, the Formula One team. So there I was doing race strategy. I was building tools used uh, before the race and building bits of technology used during the race by race engineers to decide when to do the pit stops, how much fuel to put into the car, and um, just as much of the. Although the heart of that is like a Monte Carlo simulation engine written in MATLAB and C uh much of the problem was about the ergonomics of decision making and the the stress of deciding what to do when a pit, uh, when the safety car comes out in a Formula 1 race and,
0: and how to... on. I can't I can't resist it's uh, this is the alternative data podcast but I can't resist how big so how big was the, the data team for McLaren uh
1: well when i joined it was me and uh, another guy Certainly doing that kind of stuff and um uh, there was a significant team i was next to that did simulation modeling of the of the mechanics of the car. But we were literally the only people who were thinking about the race strategy
0: dimension to it. And so how big was the data team? How big was everyone working with data for McLaren at that point?
1: I don't think anyone would identify as working in a data team at all. Actually, I think yeah. what you had is a significant sort of simulation modeling team. And we had a technology team that had all of four people if I remember correctly,
0: we're back we're back 1999 to 2002. So, so Lewis Hamilton was still riding go karts around uh, around Surrey at that point, wasn't he? Yeah that's, right. yeah, that's right. Who was who was who was your who was the big driver at that point? So
1: uh, Mika Hacken and, and David Coulthard yeah. were my my drivers. And, nice. um, uh, and and also one of the key legacies I left there were uh, some visualisations as a there's a kind of visualisation called a race trace. And I apparently this is now You go on Google race, F1 race trace, and it's a thing. And and it's recognisably the same thing that I, it popped into my head to create back in 1999, which is essentially a a view of a whole race. And it shows all the, in a sense, you can see on it in in an intuitive way how fast every car is going and where every car is relative to every other other car for every sector and every lap of the whole race. And um, I I created that. My imperative to create that was to, sort of makes make sure that the simulation models that I was creating, were create, that, that, that my simulator was creating plausible models. Uh, it was uh, behaving sensibly and sense checking that when you know I pull a lever that it, it does the right thing. And so I guess I had this sort of desire to see in this very visual way what's happening in the innards of my simulation. Yeah. And in the process that became just incredibly useful just to look at a real race and uh, equip people to build an intuition about the way the cars behave through a race strategy lens that they hadn't had before. So, um, as has happened many times in my career, simply finding a better way of, by well, human comprehension of an analytically complex problem, sometimes delivers a lot of the value you're looking for. And the, and the sim, you know the reason to do it may have been because I was doing this sort of sophisticated Monte Carlo simulation model, but half of the impact was just this way of looking at it and letting people see it. And and of course, it was also incredibly helpful giving people the confidence that this simulation model was uh, trustworthy because mm. it's a literally a way of letting people sort of kick the tires and inspect the innards of this, what would otherwise be very much a black box. And mm. I think that's often, you know, you can have the best model in the world. And this is a general point that absolutely can apply in the world of alternative data. You can have the best model in the world that fit, fits the data the perfectly but if the people you're trying to uh, you're hoping will act on what that model says don't buy into it and don't believe in it uh, don't trust it then you've delivered precisely no value so um, so I, I I was just naturally drawn to that that part of it
0: so long and short of it um it's not Bernie Eccleston it's Mark Ainsworth who's the most influential man on uh formula yeah. 1 in the last 20 years. Um but brilliant well let's let's um let's rush through um Tesco uh uh, uh, uh Tesco and then and then you then you go to Telefonica um yeah. where you are doing and and I want to say we're kind of um early teens 20 teens um yeah. and you know big data is kind of becoming a thing um i want i want to you know it's a kind of 2010s thing isn't it big data and that phrase and and data suddenly being ubiquitous and all sorts of companies finding ways to um extract value from their data and and um and analyze their customers and and advertising's kicking off and there's all sorts going on so you are you become you end up as global head of analytics at at telefonica um and then, I mean, can, can I, can I steam on into, into Schroeder's from well, in there? Or is no, there I, I think,
1: I think um, my experience in Telefonica, and should be clear, I wasn't global head of analytics for the whole of Telefonica. Uh, that sounds an extraordinarily, um, big job. Uh, it was for Telefonica smart steps. So that was the specific big data subdivision of Telefonica. And so that was absolutely my entry into the world of alternative data, because that was that idea here's some data that kind of is exhaust fumes from running some business. That might be of value to some people if we do something clever with it and that so it was that big data idea um and uh that was the point at which i started being called a data scientist not having changed what i did um but, but that became the, the, the data science and big data were the language you know, words that sort of sprang into existence in those sort of yeah early early uh, teens years and um the, the experience, interesting experience i had there was that the first version of what we tried to create as we way getting insights from crowds and that's absolutely a category of data that, that is sold in the alternative data market. Our first that's attempt true. at that was a colossal failure because we, we leapt straight to creating a, a product that would sell, package up those insights to retailers uh, and to track footfall for sort of retail use cases and um, what became apparent was that the the data, the raw material we were working with, which was cell tower connection data, was just too imprecise and too unreliable to produce, you know, the time series that tracked data that was actually accurate enough and useful enough for retailers to buy. And so the whole business had to pivot to a completely different model where um, uh, the market was transportation. That's a sector where knowing that a load of people started the day in London, finished the day in Edinburgh, and to all, you know, 50% of mm. the train. Uh, you can say with sufficient accuracy that it is act, does actually hit the mark for your sort of business customers. But um, the most interesting thing, I think, from that experience was the meta lesson about the folly of trying to leap straight to a product. And the key mistake was to have built that product at, the, at millions of dollars of, of expense without having validated that the data could deliver the value. And so when we moved to that model working for the transport sector, we had consultants that were deployed into client sites and were using kind of semi-refined data to answer all sorts of questions. And then what became apparent was that there were certain sorts of questions being asked of that data that were asked by multiple clients or being asked recurrently. and, 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 uh, And therefore, clearly they were hitting the mark. And those were the things worth then spending the money productizing. So that was an incredibly influential experience to me uh, to have seen that sort of exercise of trying to explore this space of there's this data here we've got there's a lot of people want insights how do we find the sort of mashing together of those two problems uh, because I think that illustrates in microcosm absolutely the, the opportunity of alternative data how do you create value with all this data out there uh, specifically for investment use cases so that, that was a very influential experience and if, it also I found very helpful in my career as a somebody in Schroeder's buying data like on the other side yeah. selling to have been on the other side of the counter because yeah. it, it helps you understand the process and how to negotiate as well.
0: Bureaucracy of working within a big company, for example, and uh, making yeah. the data available and things like that. Um how do uh, what was the what was the accuracy of the of the telecoms data at the time or the location data?
1: Well um so some cell towers cover only a couple of only uh, a street. Uh, and um, if you wanted to count people in a uh, lakeside shopping centre, there are some cell towers that are just pointing at the inside of that. And you can tell very precisely the people connecting those cell towers definitely are shopping in lakeside. But quite often, cell towers cover five miles. Mm. And you literally don't know where people are within that. You have to kind of infer things from other little bits of information. And uh, even GPS data. And i know you know the main source of football data in the alternative data world is gps data but gps um, is not always it's often incredibly imprecise quite often your phone only knows where you are to the nearest 100 meters and um one's intuition about the accuracy of gps is incredibly um, misleading when you're using a, a sat nav in your car you're driving along um, because whether it's Google Maps or something else that's inside your car, will always assume that you're probably on the route that it's trying to take you on and you're very likely on a road because you're driving in a car. And so it snaps this very imprecise data to something that's probably right. But Every now and then you'll have been on some journey and then the thing takes a minute before it realises you didn't take the road that it expected you to take. Mm -hmm. And that's because it really has quite an imprecise... um, The the raw data is quite imprecise and so there's a lot of modelling used to make it more accurate. And again, having been in Telefonica, I know all the games you get up to, to try to make the data, model the data to be more accurate and ways of presenting the data that give the appearance that it marries up with your sort of validation time series really well. But um, a lot of it is a a, a real, um, isn't very helpful. So for example, I, I found you could make the Telefonica data look really quite accurate by showing it tracking the sort of annual time series, and but all you're really doing is showing that yes, there are more people out in high streets at Christmas time, or weekends are busier than weekdays, and that's such an easy sort of um easy case to hit. It, it doesn't really reflect the kind of measurement you're trying to do when you're predicting the sales growth of a company, which requires a whole different kind of um measurement
0: okay brilliant okay so we are in the early teens or mid-teens by now um and schroder's come knocking and um there are not so uh, would you mind giving a, a small introduction to what Schroeder's is and i'll say why i find that interesting okay
1: so schroder's as a business it's a it's a fairly um uh you know standard long only asset manager it has must be close to a trillion dollars um, assets under management. Uh, a good chunk of that is its equities business, but it's also got fixed income. Uh, it's got a big multi asset business. It has a wealth management business. But from my point of view, um, what it is is a collection of investment, separate investment teams that each have their, their clients buy funds. Uh, so it's a mixture of, of um, retail fund customers and uh, institutional mandates pension funds and the like and um yeah so there's lots of these little little uh, asset management businesses that we are trying to kind of serve through alternative data
0: so it's a big venerable firm very familiar name 230 years ago 230 years exactly um and it is it's a it's a massive venerable name huge hugely hugely well known and it's and it's long only um and it's uh so it's it as you say. It, what it, it was from two hundred years ago. It's not a hedge fund essentially, and it's and it's part of that big. And I, it's easy from the hedge fund perspective to be say I, you know, it's it's slower moving. Let's say, um, and and a uh, more of a a more of a big beast, and and um, and. Uh, Schroeder's peers, you could say, in some ways can be old fashioned, and um, in, in other, others in that market might be seen as old fashioned in, in, in the way they go about it. Um, the the interest is uh, that a lot of people in the alternative data space have been waiting for the Schroeders and their ilk to take up alternative data, if alternative data is the leading edge of this of of data of of what you need in order to be able to invest um efficiently and safely and and positively in the markets um then this there's a lot of companies like this who ought to be consuming alternative data um and they haven't and we've waited and we've waited and years have passed and they still have not but schroder's did or schroder's in october 2014 took the decision i don't i don't know if you were first were you first
1: (laughs) Yeah, so when I joined uh in, in October 2014, I was uh the team of one in the data insights team, yes.
0: Yeah. So they, they took the decision and hired you. Um so this is this is a, a kind of an unusual story in this space, and it's and it's so uh, how did it happen? How did how do, how do you understand that happening?
1: Yeah, you? so I think the, the origin story of the team is interesting because one of the key things is so I had a colleague um who had who was a fund manager at Introdos, Um, and he had actually had a, he'd started his career in in Schroder's, he's called Ben Wicks, he started his career in Schroder's 20 years earlier, uh, had been, got to be a fund manager, and he'd taken a break and he'd been in the civil service for several years, uh, and then he'd come back to Schroder's a a year or two before I joined, and in his time in the civil service he'd seen a profound uh, transformation of the use of data for decision making, and uh, was shocked to find coming back to his desk at us that everything was the same as it had been. There had been no, nothing had changed in in the way uh, decision making was working. The south side was the same as Bloomberg Terminal login still worked, and so uh, it, it was very much this sort of outside perspective of having seen the benefits of um, adopting new sorts of technologies and techniques, uh, and telling that story to. Um, one of his key bosses, which is Peter Harrison, who was at that time head of equities, he told that story to him. And Peter Harrison, interestingly, this is somebody who's he's now the CEO of Shrojas, has been for several years. Peter Harrison, at the beginning of his career, he was the guy that in his, the asset manager he joined that sort of transformed how they did things because he was able to do this stuff with this newfangled thing called Lotus 123. And obviously, spreadsheets, you, know, you wouldn't dream of being, being an asset manager without knowing how to use Excel. But um Peter had been at the vanguard of, of this sort of step forward in how asset management works through especially so he was very open to that idea that there's another step to be taken here. And so um so yes, yeah, so Peter Harrison was the key
0: person um I, I had my interview with to, to join Schroeder's and So you're you're a believer in, in great man history rather than uh, impersonal forces. Well, I think um that
1: that the stories we tell are a big part of things and 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 it's for sure that Peter Harrison had a, a openness to to that idea uh, was is important and and has been a key sponsor of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as part of a broader package of wanting to modernize and ex, you know explore new ways of doing things. It completely and, makes sense. Uh, but but I, I remember um, after we would established a team for a few years, um, you know, one of the cell site did a review of you know, the listed asset managers and um, the different ways we'd been approaching alternative. So at the time they didn't done this, I think the team was about 12 people. Um, and uh, they felt that one of the precursor things here was that asset ma- uh, showed us as a family owned business, had the capacity to um, Be nimble. Make bold and, and patient bets on on things that many of the other asset managers like it didn't. So literally the balance sheet of Shodas was another important sort of thing that gave it the the ability to sort of take a punt on this newfangled idea and this random person who's joined the asset management industry having been in retail and telecoms and motorsport, which is uh, also quite an unusual move.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, I I think I remember reading recently that Franklin Templeton has, has... kind of fallen behind and allowed the world to slightly run away from it. And the explanation was that it's a family firm, um, which meant that it was able to stagnate as well. So, so if, if I remember that correctly, then, then the argument can go both ways, but, um uh, no, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, but, okay, brilliant. So what does the what does the what what was the dream? What did the team look like? What was the, what were you brought on yeah. to to start?
1: So so that first year, as I say, the team was me, and I was really sort of bootstrapping what what the hell can I do? And I, I didn't come with any preconceptions about what that looked like because I had none. I, I was new to the industry. Um, what I did know was that I know how to analyze data, I know how to find insights and be helpful to people through data. And I had the specific knowledge of a number of techniques and technologies from having been a hands-on uh, practitioner and manager of, of data people through the early phases of my career. So I just did, did some stuff. We did some stuff with some simple time series stuff, quite, quite impactful stuff with geospatial data. I remember doing a piece where we were looking at um, what you could infer about the strategies of the different grocery chains by which stores they were opening and closing. And uh, that was simply using doing what I spent three years of my life in Tesco doing. I was, uh, so when I was in Tesco, part of the time was in the site research department, where we were literally driving the decisions about where, where to build new stores. And so uh, I was simply transplanting entirely obvious and natural ways of doing things in the companies that showed us invest in and bringing that skill into the, into the building to sit alongside the equity analysts and the fund managers. And so we found a number of... Sorts of things that I could do where the investors said that it was useful or, you know, we actually delivered specific input onto specific investment theses. And uh, so in that phase, essentially, I was trying things, telling stories, trying things out, finding a few things, but also we had this forum where we'd have found um, about six or seven open-minded, progressive, um, innovative thinking types of analysts and fund managers and heads of research. And then myself and Ben, we would really just be throwing ideas back and forth. So it was a very um, kind of planned brainstorming exercise where we were saying, well, we've encountered this this data set out here. Um, You know, do you think this might be interesting? Well, what might it be interesting for? And they would give us some feedback, but also say, well, actually, the thing that we are really worried about at the moment is China and, and so on. So it, there was you're saying you're,
0: you're at, that, at that point, you're saying we've encountered it. Um, should we buy it or we've encountered it? We bought it. We've looked in it and we've found that there's interesting stuff in it.
1: Yes, it was very much we've encountered it. Might this be worth thinking about buying? Mm. And because there's so many things out there, although not as many as now, but um, we had to sort of validate. You know, what would this be useful? I, uh, the key thing I was absolutely energized by, very focused on, was we mustn't make the mistake that Telefonica made, which is to spend a load of money building a thing because you believe it's going to be valuable, only to find you a wrong. So, so, so that that's an, an essential feature of my thinking in in those early stages and and throughout, in some ways, which is you need a strategy to to discover what's worth doing before you then do it. So, so at all times, what we as a team did was. Essentially, had this um, you know arrangement where that we were always trying to just answer questions and be in contact with the, the business users and uh, without any presumption that we know the answer. So so um, so we were finding getting traction, and then essentially uh, we were able to demonstrate that we were, if we added more people, we would be able to do more. That the, the demand for what we we're doing uh, outstripped our supply. So over the next. Um, over those first four years, essentially, we grew to about 25 plus uh, data professionals in that mm-hmm. uh, team, The data, what we called the Data Insights Unit. So that was an initially very focused on alternative data for analysts uh, but then also included uh, tools more about sort of data science techniques than alternative data per se for portfolio managers as well. So it was trying to be a useful contributor to the analysts and the fund managers but anything where our skill set as data scientists and the tool set of databases and working in code could be complementary and additive and differentiated relative to the things that you can do if you're an analyst or phone manager and your skill set and your tool set is anchored to Excel, largely.
0: How, how many how many teams are you serving?
1: I mean, um, there are, it's difficult to measure exactly, but in some sense there are like 50 different investment teams in, in Schroder's and some are really big. So emerging market equities was one of the big teams and we did, a, 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 and I'm sure still do a lot of work with that team or global equities. You've got European equities, you've got US fixed income, you've got emerging market um, commodities. Um, so there's a dozen, certainly dozens of teams and every okay. team has lots of separate people. And, and generally each of those teams uh, doesn't greatly what you're doing for the other teams. Yeah. So what, what quite, became quite apparent was that the opportunities to really do something quite helpful and valuable came when there's something that is to some degree useful to lots of those teams. And so quite a lot of the data sets we spent money on, in a sense, the key business case was that it was going to be of value to lots of those teams. So a lot of the data sets we bought would tend to be uh, somewhat useful about lots of companies, uh, whereas I think you know the, the nature of hedge fund kind of alternative data market is probably more. This is incredibly useful for one particular company. Uh, I think it depends. I think that's a that fundamental. That I think a fundamental a approach. The but that... there's
0: a lot of quant fund, Quan funds out there who want a big universe and lots of different companies to to, to cover as well. I think there's. I think the, this the hedge fund world is is, is divided on that.
1: Yes and and the hedge but of course the, if you're doing quant what you really want is it is for that, that that one thing to be on every well ideally a, a very large proportion of the companies in the universe and it needs to be all tickerized it needs to be you know you need the hooks to join it to your database mm. and it needs to be you know it'll often want it to be timely whereas in Schroeder's, you know your your mechanism to contribute is, there's an analyst who's spending a week thinking about constructing the story they're going to tell about why they think this company is or isn't a good investment to add to the portfolio, and they're doing the research, and then they you know tell that story to the fund manager, who then and they have the debate about it, and then then the fund manager acts on it over the next few days if they're sold on that idea, and so uh, you know value looks like we've contributed one or two tiles into that mosaic that the analyst has, has constructed, and so the time frame is. Uh, much lower and and that that the blending in of that tile is not through a join on some database it's a person that you're talking to so it doesn't need to be tickerized uh, and it it can be it can still be quite sort of occasional uh, but as i say the business case for buying the data comes when lots of teams are often getting value from it and uh, and as a as a central team that had a central budget that equipped us to Act, you know, with agency. So we we, we could go out and say, right. Well, I think this sort of data about, let's say, web traffic, uh, we, we know it's useful for lots of people. We've done these little experiments and these little test cases, and that was useful in this way, and that was useful in that way. Uh, we think there are, you know, this many teams will use it this often. Uh, therefore, let's it's let's buy it.
0: Yeah, and, and
1: and often because in practice, the real power in in asset management structures is those investment teams. Each each is its own little business. And often there's a lot of data sets out there that would be very valuable to them, but they're too expensive for any one team on their own. And so there's a sort of coordination problem. How do you get all these two dozen different investment teams all to buy one thing together? And so again, what we had in Schroeder's was that we were empowered as a central team to act on their behalf and we operated like they were a supplier to them.
0: Yeah, and so you, did you need their buy-in, or could you could you make a, a unilateral decision and, and knowing on their behalf that they would they would have use for yeah. it later? On? So
1: we we would need to demonstrate to the you know the head of equities, who would actually be the person literally signing the contract, that that this was going to be worth doing, and so the the, the feedback gathered from those people was an important part of that. Mm-hmm. But um, we were empowered to act on it, and there were a couple of dates that we bought on the basis of. Um, we were clear that there's a kind of question that people kept asking that this could answer. And if we bought it, we'd then go and prove out that it's useful. But sometimes, it, you know, it's, there, were, there were some gambles we took, which, um, you know, we didn't quite know. We had, we had evidence that this would, would be valued, uh, but sometimes you don't really find out whether they can do it until you've got your hands on it
0: how does testing work is it when when you've got a when you've got a i don't know if you've got a three-month test or something do you say so that then comes into your um 12 or growing to 25 uh, person team um and then you guys are, are kind of drilling into it seeing what you can find does at the end of the test do you present it to the pms you think are most most relevant to it, and then they say, yeah, that looks great. And so you go and buy it, or, or is, there, is it more interactive in the, in, the, in the test process? I'd say it's, it,
1: it's subtly different, actually. So the key, um, key method we used was that a, a portion of the team were set up to answer questions. And so the general arrangement we were aiming for was that uh, analysts and fund managers would feel that asking us a question uh, there's a reasonable chance we'd be able to give them an answer. Uh, and the point is that we're, we're an- set up to answer questions that the sell side aren't set up to. So we're going to f- absolutely focus on doing something that's differentiated and proprietary. But um, the trick there is that people only ask a question if A, they would value the answer, and B, that answer isn't already to hand from all the other things out there. And we're acutely aware you know, we're literally competing with the sell side to provide the inputs to analysts to form their investment theses so um, the, the trick therefore is if somebody is asking a question that that tells you that that sort of a thing would be worth asking worth answering and uh so we have uh, had this constant flow of questions and of course lots of the questions were asking us things that they knew we could answer they, they knew the drawing on some data asset we'd already acquired but it wasn't overly anchored to that and people would ask us quite random questions and they were aware that we had a person whose job was nothing but going out and finding new data sources. So I remember, um, early days we had a question about whether, uh, whether data to inform a a decision about a air conditioning unit company. And, um, the fact that that question got asked was the first clue that this might be a data set worth buying. And, uh, so, so the, the, the answering of questions, the, the fact that people ask you the question and, and then specifically the questions you can't answer, that's the flow of evidence of what things might be worth buying. And then the other part of this is that um, if, if you can get some sample data or some short limited trial or something that equips you to try answering one question, then that's the way of validating, okay, is this data up to the job? And um, But again, you don't know if it's up to the job there's no back test that lets you see this sort of by an equation. The only way you can really tell that it's worth doing is you try answering a real question. Give it to the analyst or the fund manager. Did they actually find it useful? And if they did, then you've you've substantiated that uh, this is a thing that somebody wants, and that the data can do it. And uh, that's not not easy always, but um, that that's the kind of dynamic we're using. So it's a it's a subtly very different. You know, it's it's almost like the back test, but yeah, because the machinery is people you know, forming in the thesis to be a story that they tell to their phone manager to why they would buy a company, that the, what that looks like and feels like is very different and very human.
0: Being being in the role that you were, you were um, an unusual because you were working for a big big old company like Schroeder's. Um, But you were using alternative data, which is, or particularly during this period and and in general, you could probably say in in the markets is the preserve of the kind of whizzy hedge funds doing all the things they're doing with it. You were in the unusual position of uh, attending all the data um, events and and rushing shoulders with these people. And and the data providers you were talking to were, um, their other customers were, so you were getting quite a good insight potentially perhaps more than um more than your peers in in other companies um into what hedge funds are up to what they were doing with alternative data did it did it ever worry you um with that knowledge that you know that schroder's will by definition kind of be moving slower did did, did it did it worry that maybe the hedge funds were running rings around you because you could see what they were doing with the alternative data and by definition you were a 25 person team and it was it was more diversified you uh, did it did the competition worry you in that way
1: no i'm not at all because i think um uh i don't think that's a helpful uh, pro, attitude to bring to the role one plays as a as a team in a company like that like your job as a leader of a team like that is to be helpful to your colleagues and and to mesh with the machinery of, of the business so um and i was always interested to, to observe how what are the differences you see and I, I felt like the main evidence of those differences and, and kind of how we w- were different from the hedge funds was the kind of pictures you've got from um vendors alternative data vendors and the way they priced things it was very apparent that the there were such a lot of vendors that sold data that looked really good and we'd love to buy it but the pricing model was was just all wrong like this is this data essentially it works out at about $5000 per ticker kind of thing and um it's just not it doesn't mesh with the way uh, schroders funds and the people making the decisions that power those funds operate it's a it's a subtly different thing so and and interestingly um obviously hedge funds differ in their strategies and approaches but um Obviously, a very richly mined uh, sort of seam of value from alternative data is finding some sort of quant trading strategy where this thing is gives you that little window of insight, and you trade it. And after a while, that sort of signal s- stops working because other people have got onto the same trade, and that's just simply—I don't even think about that because it's just not how does people think at all. And and if I. And in the early days, we looked into this, and I, in, in through trying, learnt how not interested my colleagues were in this. But if you provided somebody, uh, you know, in global equities, some sort of signal says, "Yeah, here's this 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 signal," and if you trade it within two days of this sort of signal lighting up, and you'd get a fifty eight percent chance that it would make a profit. Um, there is uh, it couldn't be less interested in that. I mean, it sometimes might be a reason to sort of prick up your ears and think, okay, I'll, I might go and have a look at that company. But that nobody buys or sells shares in any company in those kind of core funds because of some signal that's got that sort of probability of winning. They 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 buy companies because they understand the company and the market and the, the kind of market context it's operating in, and think, well, if we buy this, then between now and Two years, five years from now, it's it will it will pay off, and that's powered by deeply by understanding the company, and so uh, we just focus on how can we help our colleagues fill in those blind spots of their understanding of the company or their market. What I found really interesting is is where um, where those blind spots end blind spots end up being. So, uh, I, easily one of the most fulfilling phases of my career was through the pandemic, um, weirdly, I mean, it's a horrible time for a lot of us, but that was a period of time when, we sort of, quite well-established as a team, and we've got that, I remember early in, in sort of February 2020, telling my team, uh, who many of whom were sort of intellectually interested by this uh, virus, some of them had ba- backgrounds in biology and, uh, uh, you know, thought epidemiological modelling seemed like an interesting thing to do, I, I remember guiding them, I don't think we'll be doing anything on this. This coronavirus thing, because it's if it becomes a thing, it's so obviously such a huge topic. Every cell side house, every newspaper, or, you know, institution will be all over this. There won't be any blind spots for us to fill. Mm. But but come March, what was starting to happen is we kept getting questions from people, uh, from our colleagues. So that that machinery of just being available to answer questions, and we do you know we'd have a go whatever that question is started to very clearly indicate that people had questions about making sense of this mess of information that was sort of spreading all over the world. So um, what we ended up doing is pivoting a whole chunk of the team to what we call our Coronavirus Research Task Force. And essentially for the next two and a half years, I found myself to be hosting every three weeks or so, a webinar, so advertised to all our analysts and financial colleagues, what we'd be doing in this webinar was a sort of summary of everything we've sort of made sense of from what the cell side have published and what academic researchers have published and what's in the newspapers and a load of data feeds we've built and uh, models and sort of uh, indicators of fast-moving trends and, yes, proprietary stuff, but everything about trying to be helpful in the pandemic. And in the early stages, I remember specifically designing some surveys and just asking the people who dialed into these what sorts of things would you like us to work in what 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 would you find useful I remember thinking that people would want us to anticipate sort of economic turning points or maybe sort of uh, some analyses across a sector or across multiple sectors that help them sort of pick the stocks but they in their answers made very clear that's not what they were looking for they were looking for deeply understanding why are things happening as they are and what, what, you know, understand the, uh, the underpinnings of the biology that were driving the things you saw. And then, so, so every few weeks I did this webinar, we tend to have about 150 people dial in. Uh, through the pandemic, I've personally compiled 2,000 slides about COVID, and I've, but the, here's the important point, I've answered, uh, or you know fielded and, and got my colleagues to answer, 700 questions about something to do with COVID-19. Wow. And so, and the feedback I had from colleagues, it was a mix, There's two sort of ways that, that people really valued what we were doing there. There were a whole load of people who essentially, it was a time saver. Uh, they because there's so much written about this and so much that's contradictory. It takes a lot of effort to take in all this information and make sense of it. So they would just disengage from all that. They'd focus on their core business, which is understand their company, their sector, doing the research on the on the stocks. And then once every three weeks, Darlene, and they'd and they know they'd get caught up on everything there was to know about COVID. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, uh, very sensible sort of division of labor between, um, given that this, this is a something that everyone has as a shared concern. And then the other mm-hmm. thing that I had as feedback um, was, uh, in a sense, we were doing a better job of making sense of this stuff uh, than the other people out there. So I uh, remember one fund manager said he thought that through particularly through that first very chaotic year of the pandemic at all times, he felt like he was about one or two weeks ahead of the rest of the market in understanding what was happening and why it was happening. And that one or two weeks was just enough to really give a a huge advantage. So, uh, in, in the 2021 kind of annual results showed us an amazing proportion of the funds outperformed their benchmark and our CEO, when asked by an analyst why that was. Attributed it partly to investments in data science, so he's specifically commenting on that work we were doing. But like I said, we'd, we'd got this machine to find the blind spots because of that sort of Q and A dynamic, and then a lot of what we were drawing on was alternative data. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff we scraped and so on. But but the things we ended up doing are not what I would have predicted. The key thing was you need a way of discovering what it is that people would want from you, and and that sort of meta machinery. Uh, was was one of the kind of key things that uh, really helped.
0: Yeah. You said, um, you previously said that you saw the sell side as kind of being the competition to an extent. Um, And the banks, the investment banks, have um, taken different approaches, but various of them have been trying to integrate alternative data into their research and and kind of attack the alternative data space. How would you characterize the different banks um, and how they're doing at it
1: yeah so i think i mean ubs was always the most um aggressive in in pursuing that uh, that, that i could see morgan stanley and ubs uh, but but ubs by, by far the most and so ubs
0: sounds when they talk they sound like you <laughs> in terms of what they tried to you know yeah. set up look in the data to answer questions essentially yeah, yeah.
1: yeah and, and it's really owning that you know i'm not trying to do what the hedge funds do because traders isn't a hedge fund so uh, this is this is the Garden I find myself in so let's water it water the plants the kind of the way that um, the way that works um yeah so and and so evidence Labs, uh, you know some of the things they were doing were interesting and, and uh, you know some of the data sets we bought and in buying delivered value to our Schroeders colleagues early days we, we stopped doing because UBS was doing it mm. or Morgan Stanley like and and so there's a you know our, our job was to be a source of proprietary Differentiated edge, and the moment something's become commoditized because it's being done, you know, by the sell side, then we stop doing it and move on to the next thing. So that that was, causes this constant shift. And there's a number of data sets we used to buy, we stopped because they'd kind of, well, the the access to the insights for fundamental bottom-up sort of long-only type decision making had become available another way. Um, and I'm reminded of. Uh, in sort of the, the way the landscape's fallen um i think it's it's very similar to the site research landscape in, in my retail days so um in tesco so i i was in this department called site research and it consists of a load of geographers who are like the key decision makers predicting where to build store we're gonna if you were to build a store a certain place how much money would it make and i was leading the team that did the technical side the mathematical modeling the data feeds the gis system and And what's interesting about that sort of landscape is sort of every retailer could benefit from applying some real science to where they build their stores and using census data and road networks and all that kind of stuff. But actually, there's only two or three retailers that have a big team. So I was in a team, that's like two dozen people in Tesco applying science to that question. And Sainsbury's had a big team, Asda had a big team, maybe a couple of others. But pretty much every other retailer in the whole country, what they tend to have is maybe one person, maybe a couple of people who've got like maybe a background in GIS or databases. And their job is to sort of be the, the, the pivot point between that business's need to make geographically sophisticated decisions about where to build stores and a, a specialist agency. So there's a couple out there, CACI is one, Geolistics is another, and it's a uh yes yeah, an agency model there's a, because to do this stuff well you need critical mass there's such a lot of data sets to buy and depths of specialism needed that um you need to be at least like 10 a dozen people to to reach that critical scale and to make it resilient and sustainable and fulfilling for the people doing it and and so there's almost you know fall between two stools you either need to be big enough to really do this stuff well or you just need just need enough to n- do a good job of drawing on resources provided from outside but the, you, the trick is to find economies of scale and an obvious way of finding economies of scale in something that every sell side house wants it is not for every sell side house to do it it's for somebody to do it in the market and sell it to all the sell side houses so you can clearly see that in in um in what UBS Evans labs do or Morgan uh yeah Morgan Stanley Alpha wise but it's also Quite apparent that a lot of the alternative data, data vendors they're not they're, they're selling what they sell in a form that doesn't need a team like my team Schroeder's uh it, it, it's sort of investor ready and mm-hmm. there's a login that you can just give straight to a fund manager and they'll get the value directly. So I think there is a lot of consumption of alternative data by uh, by side firms like like Schroeder's but it's you almost don't notice it because it's just been part of Business as usual, and, and it's yeah, you know, like I say, packaged up. Yeah. Um, in the same manner of their sort of halt login or something.
0: Yeah. Um. Covid aside, what what type of data would you say was um what data was was most useful?
1: We uh, we got a lot of um a lot of value from the the sorts of things that I feel like often, you know, management would look at on a regular basis. And, and which left a clear sort of digital footprint, so the you know, the, the, the web traffic and app app kind of data, uh, and also brand data. So um, brands, and what people think about brands, are a really important um, indicator. And like, yeah, so part of my time at Tesco was in the customer insight unit, where that um, team spent a lot of money finding out what customers thought about Tesco and its competitors and why, and uh and so that and I, you know there's such a lot of companies um, out there that where the the brand and how it's seen in various different markets is is certainly worth the company wanting to understand that, so we did that, a lot of that and I think the other category is geospatial data so we uh, we did get a lot of uh, value from geospatial analysis, but um not so much from the footfall um the footfall stuff is clearly really useful if you're doing a kind of trading around results day and sort of anticipating what the results are going to be. But as I said, that's simply not how, sh- no, nobody in Shodas buys stocks in the company because they think the, the kind of shares are going to pop over the next five days because they're going to have an upside surprise on the results they buy because they, they think it's going to be a good place to hold the value for clients for the next two years. And so um, that geospatial stuff was m- much less about footfall and those sort of short-term short indicators and much more fundamental stuff about you know retail network layouts. Like, how might two chains, to what degree might two chains have networks that are complementary in the event of a merger? That kind of
0: thing. Patent data. Um, I'm just thinking. I'm the reason I said is because it's it's the kind of thing. If you're wanting to understand the longer term trajectory of a com- of a company, then the number of patents that it's bringing out at the moment might give you a kind of they've got a they're on an innovative streak at the moment or something like that so give it five or ten years and this could all come to come to fruit or i don't know i I just i'm just throwing it out of it if it wasn't then you know i think
1: i mean i I can't say much about that but i i think the important thing is um, how many patents and the company issues isn't actually a very helpful thing to slot into your thesis sort of mosaic about is this a good company like what sorts of patents are they are they good patents are they, are they unique patents is, is, is much more important and, uh, uh, and so harder to measure think things that um, simply counting stuff is, is often not as useful as you seem and clearly when your the whole thing is premised on um, a, a, a trading strategy propelled by an equation you've got to boil things down to a number to feed it in and, and the fact you've turned something that was not quantified and you've got something, even if it's just number of patents, can be, you know, make a difference that, that's very valuable. But when your start point is you in a meaningfully sort of general intelligence sense, understand the company and its management and its strategy and its competitor context, um, counting on the number of patents is, is really quite um superficial. So that that's that's the nature of the problem and and how we you know how we have to sort of face into that
0: landscape. So trying to think of data which is going to last really and uh, which is going to give you insights that are going to last over a long period so credit card data for example isn't that great because again it's telling you what happened very recently um but and so that's a short-term gain um whereas i don't know to uh, so, say yeah brand brand sentiment or or well, did you have a macro angle as well uh, trying to understand how a population was did you did you dabble in trying to talk about measure because the geopolitical situation would be uh, useful to um, inform your, your portfolio managers, presumably. Did you try to provide yeah. that service? I, I mean, I
1: think macro is interesting. Uh, there are, aren't uh, only a small portion of the Schroeder's strategies are directly about calling macro turns. I think my my sense on macro was that there's such a, a small number of idea, it's sort of ways of trading. It's like, it's, it's sort of such an obvious thing for everyone to do. It's like, they really just want to call, will inflation, you know, go up or, you know, more or less than we expect, will GDP growth be more or less than we expect? Mm. Um, it's quite a sort of simple question. And there's such obvious, it's, the stakes are so high and there's so many people looking at it that finding uh, an edge is actually really hard. And um, whereas, you know, why, why, you know, there's so many equities and there's so many different reasons and on different time horizons why you, why you might want to invest in a specific um, retail business, say, um, that it there's a lot more room to find something where it hasn't already been priced in by the market. So that was our general, my general sense on, on macro. Um, I, I'd, I'd say generally, you know, what really gets... To be valuable, you know the heart of what the the key decisions that investors are making in traders, and the evidence is very clear that they do this well. The average time horizon of the value that the alpha they generate is, you know, best measured over multiple quarters. It's like eighteen months, two years. Um, The what tends to be true when you're really hitting the mark and finding value there is you've answered a why question. So it's it's quite simple and quite short term to say that Netflix had uh, surprisingly good results this quarter. But if you can say why those results were surprisingly good, whatever the answer to that why question is becomes a component of your understanding of the dynamics of how Netflix operates as a business and the market's operating in. And that understanding is then you know, absolutely it's then central to what you think will happen over the next five years. So when you when you see your horizon as being two years into the future, why questions are much more valuable and so data sets that might seem quite obvious but if they let you break things down by different demographic groups or different regions uh, where the company only announces stuff globally say then your ability to say oh well this quarter Netflix grew amazingly strongly because it grew in this one country and then suddenly you you equip yourself to think about oh yeah but that country is going to run out of people with broadband access in the next if it keeps going like that in within a year and then it'll slow down again so so yeah. uh, so and they, certainly the, those covid um webinars we're doing the real value was from answering the why questions so it was absolutely it needed to be timely and the questions people were asking was constantly shifting quite fast but but it was this is why this happened and then that, as I say it becomes a component of their understanding of the world
0: there are technology platforms which are which have been coming to market recently uh, or not recently which are uh, which envision a world or envisage a world in which um, portfolio long only portfolio managers uh, potentially I don't know maybe they want to kind of um, remove you from the loop (laughs) because they um, it's a technology platform which arms a portfolio manager with the ability to use alternative data themselves and somehow integrate it into their investing strategy and extract the insights themselves did you um did you uh, detect any appetite can you see a future where that is useful do you think the portfolio managers want it is there a is there a is there a vision for that do you think
1: uh definitely we've looked at some of those and i think i think it's fair to say that the problem in trying to do that—that—that that, that is the, I suppose it's a bit like that, that misstep, misstep of Telefonicas was this desire to productize, and um, so everything is premised on the idea: well, let's deliver value through a thing, a piece of technology that we've designed that is full of stuff that people will pay money because it lets them do lots of things, and. Uh, the fact is that the, that will only ever surface the things that lots of people want. And um, there's sometimes a lot of value in data sets that let you answer a question that only one person ever wanted to ask. And sometimes the most efficient way of uh, delivering that value is just to have the data. You know, If the data's on hand and uh, engineered to be analyzable, and there's somebody in your team who knows SQL, who can take the request, submit a SQL statement, quickly have a look at it, drop it in an email, and give the answer back to that person in the space of 20 minutes. And um, in a world where analysts and fund managers all knew how to write SQL statements, then yeah, I think you could do that. But I don't think that's ever going to be a world we, we go into. I think they won't think of that as being part of their job. and
0: but what Uh, about a point and click solution where they don't need to learn sql statements if that if that that emerged
1: the the problem there's an interesting fundamental problem with with kind of user user interface design which is that there is a almost inescapable trade-off between simplicity and sort of accessibility on one side and power on the other side Mm. so an interface that let you do anything you could think of with any of these thousand data sets I guarantee would be Complex. unlearnable uh, mm. by somebody, and and I think so. Particularly for the if you're sat in the seat of an analyst, once every couple of weeks, perhaps there's something you'd like to do with some alternative data set, and it may be that the, the specific data set you're using or the technique you're using to analyze it, you might only use once every six months, and it is pre- preposterous to think that um, it would be it makes sense for the analyst to learn the skills to do that. And a a tool that lets them do all of those things would be so complicated and hard to learn that they wouldn't learn it. Uh, So uh, I think a very reasonable middle ground is to have a set of people who do have those skills and they're sort of part of the team. And
0: um, uh, a a division of labour. It makes sense. It makes sense. Okay, jolly good. Um, So, Mark, uh, it's... uh, you uh, meanwhile um every every everyone should have a hinterland and have things which are of interest to them outside of their their kind of uh, their direct what they get paid for um and I've noticed recently there's been you've been quite vocal on the subject of of neuro neurodiversity um it's it's a subject which is which is very important to you um how is that how is it uh, why is it important to you and um what's what's important about it
1: yeah, so i Uh, uh, Premise: Why, why I'm into this space? So, sort of many years ago, that I realised that multiple members of my family um, are either autistic or have ADHD or both, uh, and that sort of extended family. And and so, I in starting to discover that, I needed to educate myself on that topic. And um, and in particular, so I, I, I off the back of that, I and I talked to some colleagues about that sort of thing. So, off the back of that, I did a talk last year. Introduce about autism and just explain these people what it is and, and how not only can it be a difficulty but also it can be a strength and, I, I, and at that time I knew of two members of my team who were autistic and, and I should be clear at the point when I recruited them neither I nor they knew that they were autistic so this is a journey of, of sort of discovery we went on as a sort of uh, as a team between me and them so I did this talk and then off the back of that um another three people in other departments sort of disclosed to me that they were autistic having kept out a secret from all of their colleagues and over later months another three people eventually said hey mark that talk you did was the very first moment I considered maybe I'm autistic and last week I got my official diagnosis and now my whole life makes sense and it never really did before and so that's just you know what I've realized um how is that
0: how is it an improvement to know
1: well because you understand why you never quite fitted in and why there's a set of things that you found constantly difficult or stressful or anxious making but all the people around you never seem to have the same experience
0: what about the rest of us though mark what about the ones who aren't autistic who feel those <laughs> feel those things what, what what hope for us
1: well uh, Everyone's F- got something that's sort of unique <laughs> to them. Uh, um, but I, I mean, I think autism in, in particular is at the heart of autism is uh, a, a way of the way you process information um, makes it harder to do the sort of instant synthesis that lets you intuitively know how people feel from their faces and tone so of voice and things like that, which is how uh, a neurotypical sort of communicates. But it does mean. That you have a great eye for detail so i know you know certainly in the fields of computer science uh, uh you know t- technology and in science generally um autistic people over index by like a factor of four so i would i would think uh, a lot of quants uh, will have autistic traits and uh, that's because those traits are are strengths and uh but that makes them quirky and interesting in all sorts of quite fascinating ways. And I guess this process I've been on quite recently, you know, when I... I didn't know any of these people were autistic or had ADHD, and now I know that loads of them do. And society is a at lar- large doesn't really realise quite how many sort of hidden autistic and ADHD people there are, and the degree to which the, the patterns of behaviour and the ways of organising teams and doing things makes life hard for them. Um, and so uh i feel like there's a big opportunity to really improve things uh, for people there and um so uh, yeah i'm quite energized by that
0: at the moment and the the what just just on that just on that the the people who who said that your your speech had had made them consider and Mm -hmm. then go and get themselves diagnosed um did they have a common story as to there was something specific in your speech which made them think ding, that sounds like me, or, or were there various aspects? Is there, you know, what I'm getting at is, can you say it now, and everyone who's autistic listening to this podcast will go ding?
1: Um, it was in, so, uh, no, there wasn't really one that springs to mind. I think the, um, the thing that, uh, there's a phrase from the autistic community, which uh, is quite popular, which is, once you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. Uh, and the key idea there is that uh, you know, how autism manifests in different people is is surprisingly different. But um, I think I, I would say the common feature of a lot of those people, uh, from my perspective as a manager of those people, is was about, um, about feedback and interruptions. So uh, I'm thinking one one of those theme in particular. Um, they really valued very explicit feedback. So one of the features of autism is that is uh, autistic people are less good at picking up on subtle subtext and um, you know when people don't say what they really mean, like that famous little funny lookup table of when an English person says that's very interesting, what they mean is that's really stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have autism, it's a brave
0: proposal means you're a complete fool.
1: <laughs> um I'm not quite convinced. Means I'm absolutely think this is completely wrong, uh, and all, all that kind of thing. So, so, um so there's a sort of pattern of communication, that's how you manage people differently, and you just need to be much more explicit and clear. And and that's not rude. It's actually comforting. And but the, actually, I think the main thing was about interruptions. So, I it became quite clear to me that many members of the team really hated being in uh roles or having flows of work in which they were having to juggle lots of things and so we just you know managed to perceive that that was a thing that some members of the team were struggling with and so we changed how we were working so that that was happened less and let people sort of just stay in flow and in hindsight now that i know many of them have autism I realise that that is absolutely a, a trait of autism, and uh, people with autism uh, are not good at handling sudden changes of news and interruptions. And do you think um, do you think
0: coding do you think coding lends itself well to the autistic mind because you're alone with the code and trying to solve a problem, and 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 you've got your earphones on a lot, and you're just head down, no distractions.
1: Absolutely, I, I think on two fronts. So one is. Um, code requires an eye for detail, which is what um, autistic people naturally have, and a clear logical way of thinking, un- 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 you know, not unduly encumbered by intuition and sort of messy social stuff. Um, you know, you have to tell the computer what you mean bluntly and plainly. But but also, uh, it's not so much coding per se, but I think it's absolutely fascinating to observe that the practices of Scrum and Agile software development. Like you've got um, fortnightly sprints where you have a diarized moment where you discuss what you're going to do, and then you try to stick to it. And there's a, a scrum master, and it's literally that person's job is to be the focal point of other people's interactions with the team and to defend the developers from interruption. And there's a kind of formalized, calendarized moment at the end of the sprint where you have an dis- explicit discussion about feedback and how you can do things better. And, and but but that, that sort of fundamental view that you. Um, Trying to organise everything so that people don't have interruption. Um, that's it. Could almost have been designed for autistic people. And if you weren't running mm. the assumption that perhaps twenty percent of all developers' uh, software currently do and probably always did uh, could have been diagnosed autistic, then it would be natural that um, these sort of practices, like agile, would naturally have evolved. Um, patterns of behavior that are autism friendly but i don't think any of us realize that at the time they were being constructed it's just this is what works so i, I think that's really interesting to, to i'm talk.
0: reminded of mr spock from star trek i wonder if the vulcans were were an autistic race i'm not <laughs> sure <laughs> but um just the, lo- the logicalness i'm thinking in the kind of calm but anyway maybe i'm uh, maybe i'm simplifying um Brilliant. Well, Mark, uh, so you left you left Schroders in in December last year. Um, what's what's the what's what's the situation now?
1: Well, so I'm um, I'm doing bits and pieces of analytical work. I've been uh, enjoying uh, getting myself up to speed on Tidyverse and R. I love uh, R and the Tidyverse package. I think it's absolutely brilliant because uh, I've for lots of my career I've been a manager, and so my the ability to get up to speed on the latest developments in actually hands-on data science has been a bit missing so I've enjoyed that Uh, and um, so I'm still sort of interested in doing things in in the industry and in the markets but you know my shtick is quite abundantly I'm an insight professional and you know where half of the problem is the people aspect of it uh, you know I'm fascinated by how you solve that half of it but, but absolutely linked to the technical bit of it so i'm i'm currently considering where i go next that sort of uh,
0: what would uh, attract you in a in your next role
1: well it's sort of something that's um a new challenge really and um that has a you know a lot of variety and uh i you know could be i mean this is my problem like i've done i've worked in six completely different industries and i, I could imagine finding very fulfilling fulfilling being another six so mm-hmm.
0: uh, i could go anyway so i'm um, yeah, open, open to ideas, yeah, um, yeah. And, and yeah, wow me! I think is there. <laughs> Um, perfect. Well, Mark, this has been a, it's been a great pleasure. Very interesting. Um, I'm delighted to have really got to grips with the kind of unusual model of, of, of Schroeder's attacking alternative data um, and also uh, managed to talk about new neurodiversity as well. So um, so uh, best of luck with the next endeavors. I'm sure they'll be just as, just as interesting as the previous ones. And, um, and yeah, best of luck. Thank you.